back to Hearsay, everybody. I am Jacob Stuckin. And I'm Greg Radisic. And we are going to be talking today about the upcoming Reference re- Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act that the Supreme Court of Canada will be hearing later on in March. The Greenhouse Gas uh, Pollution Pricing Act, otherwise known as the GGPPA, uh, is a federal government's is the federal government's piece of legislation um, that's targeting carbon pollution and uh, kind of both in the public sphere as well as in the industrial realm. It applies to all of our provinces here in Canada, and uh, it's here essentially to uh, reduce the emissions um, within these provinces. Uh, probably the overall goal is. Um, to kind of set a standard, uh, a bottom line that all provinces have to adhere to. And all of the provinces have the ability to um, implement their own legislation that meets these standards or even exceeds these standards. But if they choose not to, then kind of this is the backstop. This is what's implemented by the federal government. Exactly. And now we're going to head into our interview with uh, two professors from the U of C, we're going to be talking more about this reference case. So we'd like to welcome uh, professors David Wright and Martin Olshinsky from the University of Calgary Faculty of Law. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Great yeah. to be here. Good to be here. So just uh, briefly off the top, I'm curious if you'd be able to explain your career path and how you ended up at your role at the U of C Faculty of Law. Uh, Well, I'll keep this short and sweet. Uh, In short, this was the line of work that I wanted to do basically ever since law school, but the path became a meandering one for a number of reasons, including uh, family reasons. Um, So I spent a fair amount of time in practice and then uh, eventually made it back to do graduate studies in the U.S. And um, marvelously, this uh, opportunity came up just as I was wrapping that up, and um, the rest is a short two-year history. Yeah, similar. I I probably went to law school even uh, with the idea that I would want to practice in environmental law. Um, My mentor there, professor, sort of got me hooked, I think, on academics, but another mentor suggested that I'd probably benefit from some practical experience, so I worked in the federal government for about a half dozen years in environmental natural resources law and policy, and then similarly uh, got my master's degree at a school just up the hill from from where Dave got his um, and uh, and then landed at the University of Oda six years ago. Excellent. That's a, that's a very good introduction and I think that that sort of brings us to our next question, narrowing in on the overall topic today. Yeah, so second question would be what is a constitutional reference case? That's what this is all about. And why do these cases exist? Sure, I'll take uh, that one, although uh, feel free to jump in, Professor Olshinsky. Uh, so a constitutional reference case is an opportunity for a jurisdiction to pose a certain legal question to the court. So generally, this is another instance of kind of cryptic legal language. So reference case just means a question referred 
to the court to answer. They're fairly uncommon. Every now and then they, they crop up, and typically that happens, to answer your why question, Gregory, in situations where there is some degree of legal uncertainty. And so it is important to note, though, that these are non-binding um, opinions from the court. So they, to contrast that from a ch- typical judicial decision, which are binding in whatever jurisdiction they're issued, and if it's the Supreme Court of Canada, it's binding on the entire uh, network of uh, legal systems across the country. But in this context, it's an opinion issued by the court to provide legal clarity to actors across the country. Generally, they are observed and followed, though, by um, all actors and levels of court. Amazing. So when we're talking about a constitutional reference case, uh, we often hear about interveners who have a mandated amount of time to speak in these cases, but they have to be uh, granted leave to intervene. Uh, To that point, what are interveners in the context of constitutional reference and what role do they play? Right, and I guess uh, it makes sense for me to answer this question because I'll be representing one of the interveners uh, before the Supreme Court in the greenhouse gas pricing reference coming up uh, at the end of this month. Uh, and so, you know, in any given dispute, of course, you have the primary, you have the applicant, um, whoever is challenging the constitutionality of the law in this context, and then you'll have respondents. Uh, and so here in this context, uh, both the province of Saskatchewan and the provinces of Ontario uh, challenge the constitutionality of the Greenhouse Gas Pricing, Pollution Pricing Act, or GGPPA. Uh, Canada is the respondent defending its law. Uh, but of, our system recognizes that, you know, beyond those two parties, there may be very several other parties uh, that have relevant expertise and interest in the outcome of the dispute and that they can help the court better understand the issues. They can provide additional context that maybe the primary parties aren't really in a situation uh, to do. And so in this case, uh, you know, so intervention has a long history. Um, it is it might be unprecedented. I think we have something like 25 interveners before the Supreme Court coming up here in two weeks. Um, and so the idea again there, though, is that each intervener, you know, the idea isn't to repeat what the other parties are arguing, but really to try to provide a unique perspective, something that the court might not otherwise get a chance uh, to think about uh, uh, to help it with its analysis. So outside of these interveners, um, it seems like there's a lot of uh, opinion throughout the public sphere um, about the reference and the impact it can have. In your opinions, uh, what impact can this reference case actually have on the public? Just picking up on Dave's point, I mean, I, you know, that these are not necessarily binding, uh, and yet they clearly have a normative force. Uh, and, and so you think about previous examples, the succession reference, um, we think about uh, gay marriage reference in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, you know, it, it seems clear that when the court pronounces on these matters, uh, the public pays attention, and it can help uh, push um, both acceptance or non-acceptance of a given proposal, for instance, right? So I think it's safe to say that, um, you know, depending on which way the court lands um, is going to have an impact on, I think, how the public perceives this problem, you know, recognizing that at the end of the day, at its core, this is very much also a political dispute between the provinces and the federal government. It will speak to, I think, um, and have an effect on how the public sees that dispute playing out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the disputes you see in public discourse and in the political sphere, to some degree, flow from uncertainty in the law. So whether people know it or not, um, the points of debate 
can be traced back to uncertainty about provincial jurisdiction over natural resources, or at least the degree to which that may be quote unquote exclusive or not, and, and similar on the federal side of things. So this uh, reference case should put some of those legal questions, or at least important dimensions of those legal questions, to bed, which um, hopefully will quiet uh, some of the debate and tension that exists uh, out there, at least diffuse it so that the discussions are uh, based on more clarity in the law. So people are talking past each other less and with each other more. Right. And on that point of clarity, uh, we've had decisions now from the Ontario Court of Appeal, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, and the Alberta Court of Appeal on this uh, Pricing Act reference. And uh, if you two could just speak to a moment about uh, maybe some of the differences or similarities in each of those decisions and uh, sort of how that happens, uh, because these reference cases are nationwide now, uh, but they didn't start out that way. So um, there are three reference cases proceeding through the system, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. And back to the first question, first substantive question about reference cases. Um, typically, these do start at the um, Court of Appeal level in each province, which they have in these three situations. And in the Ontario and Saskatchewan context, um, both of those decisions were um, appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada said, yep, we'll, we will hear these cases, and that's what's happening at the end of March. Alberta's lagging a little bit just by the by because the provincial election was whatever was late last spring. So the timing of that case moving through court is slightly slower than the other two. Uh, just to break down the anatomy of the decisions in Ontario and Saskatchewan, in short, uh, the both were split decisions. The majority in both cases upheld um, the federal legislation using, under the uh, peace order and good government um, provision of the Constitution, which is a federal uh, power using the, quote, national concern branch. We don't need to go into the doctrinal rabbit hole here, but it boils down to how the pith and substance um, also um, more colloquially put as the purpose of the statute boils down to what the purpose of the statute is. In both cases, the majority framed that quite uh, narrowly. And so um, this new federal power is relatively targeted and specific. Um, whereas the dissent viewed it as a more general uh, matter. So the majority found it that the, uh, the purpose was to set a minimum national pricing standard or similar. Martin, you can parse that a bit more. Um, whereas the dissent typically looked at this as regulation of greenhouse gas emissions um, in general. Alberta Court of Appeal was sort of the opposite um, in terms of the split decision, where the majority looked at this as a very general matter, an undue intrusion or imbalancing of federal-provincial jurisdiction constitutionally, whereas at least one member of the dissent in Alberta did uphold it using a fairly narrow uh, framing. So one of the things I think that might be useful for your re uh, listeners to understand is that it's not really a question of whether or not the federal government can take action to deal with climate change all the parties actually acknowledge and all the courts have acknowledged that there are powers here. Criminal law has been used to protect the environment. There's a, what we might call a more straightforward or conventional use of the t federal taxation power. So the question really in this context isn't rather if, but how. 
And, and so what Canada has argued uh, in the context of the GGPPA, which is a, you know, 250 pages of legislation, is that it said, look, we are actually going to invoke this residual power. So it's not one of what we call the enumerated heads in Section 91 or 92, but rather we're invoking this residual power um, and, and under, you know, over, over 100 years of case law, there's essentially these two branches. One is called the emergency power branch, and, you know, so that the federal government can do whatever it needs to do to deal with an emergency. And in fact, stay tuned, I think, uh, when we talk about coronavirus these days, uh, you know, you might see the federal government doing something pretty drastic in that context to deal with it on a national level. Um, but then even in the absence of an emergency, there's what's called the national concern branch, as Dave was mentioning. And so Canada said, look, we think that this is a matter of national concern and we want to deal with it. You know, the, the, the flip side of that is that you get this fairly plenary power, uh, supports broad regulatory kind of regimes. And Canada says, this is what we need. You know, we, we want to be nimble in this context. Um, so then the provinces are turning around saying, no, this isn't a matter of national concern. This is too broad. And if you use this power this way, you're going to essentially like wipe us out. The impacts on our own policies and preferences um, are essentially, it's essentially cast them aside. And, and so as Dave mentioned, um, one of the ways around that uh, for the majorities in, in Saskatchewan, Ontario, was to define the matter very narrowly. They said, this isn't about the G regulation of GHGs generally. It's about setting minimum national standards, whether for pricing or otherwise, uh, for, for reducing emissions. Um, the, the dissents in both those courts disagreed with that characterization, thought it was maybe too cute by half, you know, sort of said, look, let's be realistic here, folks. What you're doing here is you're regulating all emissions, essentially. Um, and, and that is really what the Alberta Court of Appeal sort of then exactly takes that outcome and flips it. And the majority there says this is about GHG regulations. This is fundamentally about natural resource development in the province. Therefore, the federal government had no authority to pass it. And just to pick up on that natural resources element, uh, would, would it be fair to say that was another distinction in Alberta was the uh, more dispositive weight that was placed upon Western Canada and uh, Section 92A, which we don't need to get into in, in great detail, but that aspect versus, uh, say, maybe Ontario and the, the non-Western um, allocation of natural resources. So absolutely, there's a arguably unprecedented discussion of Section 92A in the Alberta Court of Appeals majority decision, um, which is, is very Alberta-centric in terms of its conception of those provisions uh, around natural resources. Of course, what natural resource development looks like in Alberta is very different from what it looks like in British Columbia or what it might look like in Ontario or Saskatchewan for that matter. So absolutely, that's a big part of it for sure. And I would just jump in and say that the uh, view taken by the majority in the Alberta Court of Appeal opinion is fairly rigid in its interpretation of provincial jurisdiction over natural resources. And this is a long, contentious issue. but And so there's a spectrum of ideas and a spectrum of interpretations and opinions in court cases, on, although not a lot of court cases. Um, but the majority's view is, I wouldn't say patently inconsistent with other lines of cases, but does take a much more rigid view than the last few decades of jurisprudence on the division of powers and cooperative federalism in Canada. So it'll be useful for the Supreme Court of Canada to discuss that um, in relation to its own jurisprudence over the last few decades. So we know that uh, at the end of March, the Supreme Court of Canada will be hearing uh, the appeals from the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. However, uh, Alberta, the Alberta Court of Appeal decision 
won't be uh, appealed up to the Supreme Court. It will just be uh, considered by the Supreme Court when it hears from the interveners and the parties in the other two cases. So what does that uh, kind of create for the, um, the constitutional situation going forward? So what, what's interesting actually about that question is that Alberta won its reference, right? Uh-huh. So it actually can't appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, and so only Canada could appeal. And I think uh-huh. most of us understand that uh, what's probably going to happen simply is that, I mean, Saskatchewan and Ontario are set down for March 24th and 25th. Yes. And, you know, I think we all expect that Canada will essentially uh, accept the outcome of that reference um, in any case. And it's unlikely to further appeal um, the Alberta decision uh-huh. itself. Uh, and, but, you know, as part of that then, is, and, and this might explain and also, you know, think of the, the speed with which the Alberta Court of Appeal decision came out, right? The hearing mm-hmm. was in December, um, and, and we have a decision by late February. Uh, you know, it will be part of the background, I think, understanding that the courts will be applying in this context. And I, I think we all assume, for instance, that the Attorney General for, for Alberta will be um, borrowing uh, from the Alberta Court of Appeals judgment mm-hmm. in his own uh arguments before the court. Exactly. Just to, just to build on that. So the Attorney General of Alberta will be in the courtroom as an intervener able to make submissions for Alberta. Uh, further, just like any other um, court case, the Supreme Court will have relevant recent uh, decisions and jurisprudence before them, including the Alberta Court of Appeal case. So Alberta will be very much present and even actually represented, just not as uh, a party. It's good to have that understanding because depending on your uh, interest level and your experience with the news coverage of these reference cases it's not always easy to determine who's participating why they're participating and what are the roles of the different governments because that's an overarching theme that we're discussing today is that the federal government has one view and then the provincial governments have a, a range, I might add, a range of different views. Because in these cases, we have the province saying, we deserve to regulate, mm. but then they need to have their own scheme of rules, of statute, mm. to regulate. Yeah, uh, there's a number of ways to approach that question. But to build on Martin's early, earlier point, um, this isn't a question of whether the provinces or the federal government have jurisdiction to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. It's a matter of how. Um, all provinces have some regime in place. Um, But let's just step back to an important point about the architecture of this federal legislation, which is it's a backstop. So similar to how you define the matter and the purpose, it really is designed to create a floor, right? So that all provinces and territories have to at least meet this minimum, recognizing that climate change and greenhouse gas emission reductions are a collective action problem. This is a way to get the collective to act at least to a certain degree Um, presumably in line with international commitments or at least some kind of meaningful action. Um, And so Alberta specifically, um, they had a a system in place uh, called the Carbon Competitiveness Incentive Regulation. Um, That was repealed and replaced by the new provincial government um, uh, late last year, but it took effect starting at the start of this year by the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction Regulation. Um, And so this gets complicated in a hurry, but I'll try to be very 
plain about plain language about. So under the federal regime, there's part one and part two that are most relevant. Part one is the so-called carbon tax, carbon levy, uh, part of the regime that um, imposes a price on carbon somewhere along the emissions um, stream or chain, and that is typically passed on to the consumer, for example, at at the pump. There's also part two, which is a so-called output-based uh, performance regulation or something to that effect. And that covers large industrial emitters. And so that's in place. And so what happens is in the federal legislative regime, there is lots of space. There's lots of legislative space for for provinces to do their own thing as long as it meets that that floor. And so when a regime like the new Alberta one comes along, there's sort of a crosswalk or comparison between the provincial regime and parts one and parts two of the act to see if it meets that minimum standard. In the Alberta context, part twos, the um, industrial level, let's call it industrial level regime, uh, passes muster and it's deemed equivalent. And so um, that part of the new Alberta regime is in place and functioning kind of harmoniously with the federal regime. Um, the first part, though, the carbon uh, pricing that gets passed on to consumer um, is not in place in Alberta anymore. And so the federal backstop is therefore being imposed um, on the Alberta context. In particular, why do you think it's so controversial between the federal and the provincial government of Alberta um, in terms of the implementation of this carbon tax? Because you'd think that Alberta might come up with uh, a solution that meets the muster because they were definitely capable when it came to the industrial uh, mm. regulations. Yeah. I don't want to make too many, uh, too much conjecture around the political side of things, but in general, I mean, you saw that, that, that carbon pricing has, uh, for uh, many years now, if not decades, been a contentious political issue. Elections have been fought, won, and lost on it. It's a fairly easy um, target to um, raise in an election context, and and a promise to eliminate. Um, some kind of fee levy tax that um, costs people money every day, even if it's just cents, is attractive. And uh, I think a lot of what well, we've seen across the country, a lot of um, uh, election campaigns want to make hay out of that and, and garner votes. Zooming out a bit, in, in terms of the general aspect of the environment and greenhouse gas regulation, um, one of the things that we might be hearing about in this reference case is the idea of, of emissions leakage. Uh, would you be able to, to speak to that both maybe interprovincially but also globally and why, why that can be played both ways depending on your view of this act? It's one of the, one of the th reasons um, that Canada has asserted the jurisdiction to do this under POG, uh, under the National Concern Branch is exactly that problem, is that while recognizing that the provinces have various heads of power through which they can access emissions reductions, property and civil rights, Section 92A, jurisdiction over resources, um, the, the flip side of that is that they're confined to, the, to those things within the province, and that another province um, that doesn't take action, uh, for instance, um, will uh, can undermine or effectively wipe out any kind of gains that that other province has made so the example of course and why british columbia for instance is intervening in favor of canada's jurisdiction is that british columbia has made significant strides has had a carbon price in place for 15 years almost i think um has won elections on it uh there's a sort of a bipartisan consensus in, in british columbia um 
And and yet, you know, if if Alberta doesn't do its part, if Saskatchewan doesn't do its part, then all of the, then a lot of that good work can be undermined. Further, the, to speak to this idea of leakage, you know, uh, rather than reducing emissions in British Columbia, what might happen is that a company could just pick up and move its shingle over to Alberta, for instance, where it says, well, we have less costs incurred here. So that's really, you know, that's part of what the rationale for this minimal national standards sort of regime, right, is that it ensures that each province, that no one province is undermining the efforts of the other um, and that they're all sort of rowing in the same direction. It is true that that can also happen in in an international context. But in that context, of course, nation states have tools and levers that they're able to exercise to sort of deal with it. So one of them is border adjustments. And we haven't seen a lot of that right now. So imposing a tax, for instance, or a levy on goods that are coming in that don't have in their source, in their um, location of origin, don't have a similar sort of pricing mechanism, then you impose those at the border and you've essentially negated that sort of competitive advantage. There's also, of course, international law, the international legal order, uh, the IPCC framework. Um, you know, so nation states are able to bind each other in these kinds of international agreements in ways that the provinces are not able to do, actually. And in fact, if, you know, in, in the sort of worst case scenario, of course, states do have the power, theoretically at least, and, and sometimes we've seen this exercised, um, to sue for transboundary harm. Um, that's something that can happen sometimes. And again, provinces don't have that kind of power. So, um, you know, all of that sort of is, again, sort of pushes in the direction that, uh, you know, really this has become a national problem and is something that Canada needs to be able to deal with. Right. Get, getting back to the national concern idea as well, maybe more of an abstract conception, but still you have this argument by the federal government and by BC saying that uh, a failure of, of one of these provinces to meet that backstop is a problem that that Canada has to deal with and indeed is dealing with through these global instruments. You know, we had we had the Paris conference, for example, and then those elements have to get distilled down to the provinces. Yeah, and I mean, that's the, the cryptic language around that and the test is the provincial inability test. And so um, to the extent that any single province or subset of provinces are unable to set some kind of floor, some kind of backstop for everyone to act, the legal argument goes that then that should be um, um, provided to the federal government as constitutional power, uh, but to be exercised with restraint in the spirit of cooperative uh, federalism. Right. This, this idea that we have uh, we have a, a bit of a tension between the two branches. We have the provincial and the federal lists of responsibilities, and sometimes they overlap. Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and what's interesting actually here is that this is actually one of the main issues I think that we're going to see the Supreme Court having to grapple with is, is the nature of this provincial inability test. And so the provinces that are opposed to Saskatchewan and Ontario have argued that it's not about their refusal, but rather it has to be a genuine inability, uh, some kind of jurisdictional impediment that prevents them. And they say, you know, the fact of the backstop mechanism, the fact that the act stands down in the face of valid provincial legislation that meets uh, the comparable stringency, they say, is proof that there's no inability here, but rather a refusal, and that that's a policy disagreement and not a constitutional or a legal one. Um, the the reverse side of that is essentially the just the history of the national concern branch, um, and the and and the provincial inability test and the way it's been developed over time is is that it you know it actually does seem to consider the potential for 
not just an in, a, a, not a pure inability, but a refusal to do something and the effect that that would have on extra provincial interests. And so one way to think about it is actually in terms of externalities. The, the question here is, you know, is this something that we say is, is fully within provincial jurisdiction, uh, within the sphere of jurisdiction that the provinces ought to have some degree of autonomy to control? And, and, and this invokes notions about federalism and, and the nature of our federation. Um, or, in fact, are the provinces, is the nature of the problem such that they are externalizing some of these impacts, in which case it makes sense for the federal government to have a role in sort of cleaning that up or closing that gap? So essentially the implications of the coming reference and the coming Supreme Court decision um, would be just solidifying the jurisprudence going forward surrounding greenhouse gases and kind of seeing what's the next jumping board um, from where we are now to where we might be in the future. Yeah, so two quick legal points, and I'll relay volley the second one over to Martin um, in a moment. But uh, first of all, I don't think we were all that clear earlier in saying that there is not much case law uh, with respect to the so-called POG power under the Constitution. There's just a small handful of cases. and So maybe full circle in our discussion, um, this reference case, these reference cases are coming up and proceeding because there is so little guidance from the court. And so to, I guess, us legal geeks, this is going to be a very valuable moment where we get clarity. Um, but we should be clear that we've only been talking about this one so-called residual um, fed, uh, federal constitutional power of POG. And there are actually a number of other powers that the federal government can use to legislate in relation to greenhouse gases and has in the past. Um, and perhaps, Martin, you want to jump in to describe at least some of those. It's possible. Certainly certain interveners have argued alternative heads. And so they've argued the emergency branch, actually. Um, none of the lower courts have taken that um, on, but, but the argument has been made. Um, they've argued the criminal law power. And so the criminal law power has been used fairly extensively in Canada um, since about 1997, when the Canadian Environmental Protection Act uh, regime for toxic substances was upheld as a matter of criminal law. The point is that the power is there, that we're just talking about one specific one. And so we'll see how this goes, but um, this won't put the issue of regulation of greenhouse gas emissions to bed forever. The federal government will be around and doing stuff in this space for a long time. 